on this episode of the Alt Normal. Normal. We're at a crossroads, and especially for practitioners and companies and not-for-profits or their partners or such, we can do purpose washing or we can do authentic purpose. And authentic purpose is long-term. It comes from the values of the company. It engages the employees. It, it has innovation, and it has true impact. It has goals and impact. Another coronavirus vaccine has shown to be highly effective. Welcome to the Alt Normal, an exploration of the diverse voices on planet Earth. Joe Biden will become president of the United States. Doing the critical work of rebuilding a healthier, more sustainable alternative future. At the intersection of self, community, and the planet. We live in uncertain times. Powerful moment of revolution. How we choose to steer the path will determine what kind of alt-normal we consciously remake together. Everyone has a part to play. Let's rise. Shift and support this exciting new reality in the making. The alt-normal. Hi, I'm Tiffany Wen, the host of The Alt-Normal. This is a show that centers embodied integration as the absolutely critical force for rebuilding this post-pandemic world that's ever more sustainable, diverse, and inclusive. Culture needs a rebrand that goes deep at the core of who we are in the integration of our rich diversity, complexity, and emerging alternative paradigms. Let's be real. We are in a crisis of consciousness, realizing that the only way to change things out there is to first change things in here. The power structures and institutions can only take us so far. To see a world that's diverse and inclusive for all actually requires us to change from the inside out, shifting into actionable models of power with one another versus power over one another. Now more than ever, we need a new story for humanity that leans into the diversity of who we are and our emerging zones of genius to live more truthfully in how we relate to ourselves, our community, and the planet. So let's pick up those forgotten pieces of ourselves to rebrand our story of humanity from one of separation to one of integration. We're talking integration of the mind with the body, the scientific with the spiritual, strategy with emergence, and the individual with the collective. This show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of Dig, Seed, Grow, a methodology that powers our core capabilities in branding and content creation. Our mission is to design resonance between brands and their most valuable audience to drive the greatest possible impact. After 20 plus years of working in New York City and Milan for Fortune 500 companies in marketing and advertising, we decided to take the big leap and make a fundamental shift in how we work and bring brand stories to life. The Alt Normal is recorded at Destination Outpost, a co-living and co-working community based out in Bali. They have amazing spaces located in Ubud and Chenggu, that enable people to live and work from paradise, encouraging people to live differently so they can work from beautiful destinations and build strong connections with others on a similar path through life. 
So today I am so excited to introduce our guest, Carol Cohn. So Carol is internationally recognized for her work in purpose, corporate citizenship, and CSR. Carol Cohn on Purpose is her fourth enterprise activating her purpose to educate, inspire, and accelerate purpose strategy, programs, and impacts for corporations, brands, nonprofits, and current and emerging professionals around the globe. For more than 35 years, Carol has embraced a steadfast commitment to leading the purpose movement. Cohn has executed executed over 250 purpose programs from overall enterprise purpose to social purpose, ESG strategies, and communications, all the way to cause branding and nonprofit positioning, fundraising, and stakeholder engagement. To amplify the value of purpose over her career, she has also conducted more than 30 research studies to educate and inspire professionals to embrace this critical strategy. She also hosts the podcast Purpose 360, nearing 100 interviews to date. And to support more powerful business and nonprofit partnerships, she authored Breakthrough Nonprofit Branding. This extensive body of work has gained her fascinating descriptions. Purpose Queen from the BBC, one of the world's seven sustainability pioneers by sustainable brands, to, quote, arguably the most powerful and visible figure in the world of cause branding by PR Week Powerlist. So she served many different clients and colleagues all around the world and industries, Adobe, Aflac, the American Lung Association, Bezos Family Foundation, Campbell's Soup Company, Conagra Foods, hopefully I pronounced that correctly, the Everglades Foundation, General Motors, Girl Scouts of the USA, the Kerry Group, LG, Microsoft, P&G, PNC, Reebok, Southwest Airlines, Unilever, Western Union, and Whirlpool, among others. Whirlpool. She's a highly sought-after speaker and media expert, sharing her insights on purpose branding, corporate citizenship, sustainability, and CSR around the world, from the New York Times to The Economist, Wall Street Journal, Fast Company to CNN, and the AP. And you've garnered also many different accolades, and I'll just mention one, um, creating the special Affleck Duck, a social robot to comfort pediatric cancer patients during their 1,000 days of treatments, which was named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of 2018 and best in show at the 2018 Consumer Electronics Show um, and winner of two Can Lions. So, Carol, it is such a pleasure to finally have you on the show. I've been watching you and your work and just the emergence that you've had, especially in 2020 in this pandemic when purpose is no longer just a luxury, it's a mandatory. And I'm super excited to explore all of this with you today. Thanks so much for being on the show with us. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled. And what I realized when you had that introduction... I need a really brief introduction. <laughs> like, you know, you know, she does good. How's that? She's done good for a while. <laughs> that as well. I think it's it's amazing to just see the journey. But of course, you've just done good. Simple as that, too. 
So I would love to start things off, Carol, by going a little bit personal. So you are a purpose pioneer and really steered its evolution from the very early days. You've watched purpose grow up and you've been part of that co-evolution. And you started that work at Edelman, I believe, way before Edelman, but you brought it there. Oh, no, way before Edelman. Way when I was the cone, when I was the cone of cone. So Cone was founded in 1980. You probably weren't even born. And and if you were, you were like really, really young. And in 1983, the Rockport Shoe Company came to us. And, you'll, and you know, there are points in your career, you never forget it. You, re, you have that picture in your mind. And Bruce Cates, he's sitting across from my desk and, you know, he had read about me because I had done some amazing work for Timberland and um, New England, there's a lot of shoe companies. And so he's a shoe company and Rockport shoes at the time were a brilliant invention. They were Nike innards with a street shoe outer. That was the genius of Bruce's dad who created the shoe, but they were so, they were kind of ugly. They were very ahead of their time. And the company was about $20 million. Nobody knew them. And he's sitting across from me at my desk and he knew what I did for, you know, you did great work for Timberland. Great. I want you to do it for me. Okay. <laughs> he shows me the shoes. Uh, he says, I want to build my, my company in a different way, you know, on promotion and ideas. And basically he didn't have the money for advertising. So yeah, but I was a young firm. So I said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to take them on. I'm going to take them on. So it took over a year of doing traditional marketing. We would take him to editors and show the shoes and they would just politely listen and then escort us out the door and nothing would happen. They were just not, they were homely, but they were functional. So about a year later, um, I got this idea and really what were the shoes great for? They were great for walking. Now, aren't all shoes great for walking? Well, no, I was visioning walking for health and fitness. And at the time, my superhuman power is connection making. And I, I'm very, very curious. And I, I take lots of things and they just come together in my mind. And I saw that you had people, runners that were getting hurt, people doing a lot of aerobics, getting hurt and walking. If you walked in a fitness way, in a faster way, um, it was good for your health and good for your heart. Long story short, we positioned them as the walking shoe company. And we had a guy who walked around the country and he said to kids, don't smoke, eat properly and walk. Now he walked around the country, 11,208 miles over a year. And he would eight times during his walk. Cause you know, the walk itself wasn't interesting. What we did and what was new is we, we um, aligned him with a doctor who was back in Boston. And so he flew back, he'd walk to the airport in Omaha. He'd fly back to Boston. He would then get tested for his health parameters, to see, he was like a walking human experiment. And then he'd go back to where he dropped off, and then he'd keep walking. And he did this. And as he was walking, we did publicity, we did a movie, we did a book. And when he was finished, we had a proclamation from the president of the United States that walking was good for you. <laughs> we had a walking book. And all of a sudden, we were creating the content. Now, this is pre-internet days. This was like, you know, <laughs> you had to like send mail. You know, and we built the content up to just to create the conversation, dominate the conversation. And Rockport became the walking shoe company. And we walking became an accepted new fitness activity. And we created a walking book. We created walking tests and they grew from 20 to 150 million in about four years. 
It was really, really exciting. Rockport was everywhere. And so that was the first time I linked a company with a social issue. There was no playbook to do this. I just did it in my gut because I knew that they needed to stand for something more than features and benefits. And that was the first time I, and it wasn't called purpose. In those days, it was called cause marketing. And, you know, that was, and, and at the time, the only one that was really doing it, the Statue of Liberty, the Statue of Liberty Restoration Project, where you use the card and a penny or two went to restore the Statue of Liberty. Um, but that was the first one. And then Reebok bought them, sad day for me, good day for him. Reebok bought them and Reebok was becoming ubiquitous. And they said, well, Carol, figure it out. And we created the Reebok Human Rights Awards to be partnering with the Amnesty World Tour with Sting and Peter Gabriel. And that was extraordinary. And Reebok had this really deep story about helping young people under the age of 30 do nonviolent acts of human rights. And then after that, we did Heinz and the Modern American Family and Avon and Breast Cancer. And then we started doing research. So it was an amazing the first years, there weren't many people doing it, but it was amazing work and continues to be. That's uh, a wonderful introduction into how you almost fell into it because it was asked of you versus you trying to seek it out. And just from a personal sort of angle, I know this was in your bio and I deliberately left it out because I wanted to ask you about it now. But you mentioned that your most personal moment was actually meeting the Dalai Lama prior to a speech that you gave in Calgary called The Power of Business for Good. So I don't know how long ago that was, but I wanted to ask you what that moment, if you could hold it in your mind and memory, taught you about these like threads of business, doing good, higher consciousness, maybe you can even say spirituality, and how all of these different worlds kind of landed in you with the Dalai Lama in that moment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, well, it was a profound movement moment. There were two conferences happening in Calgary and one, the Dalai Lama was going on this tour. And so he was going to, he was coming to Calgary to give spirituality to the city and aligned with that was a business conference. And so I was selected to be the bridge speaker following the Dalai Lama because I was talking about goodness and business. Now, this was eh, 2008-ish, something around there. And because at the, at the time, I was also writing my book. And my one of my co-authors was in Calgary. So I really wanted to meet the Dalai Lama. And I remember where I was emailing the gentleman that takes care of him. He's a special name, but I can't remember him. And you request an audience. And so I'm emailing and I'm requesting an audience and I, and I, how I, and I went out and I purchased a kata, you know, the, the white, beautiful, you know, ribbon that you wear around you. And I wanted the Dalai Lama to bless my kata anyway. So I get there and, and I'm not allowed to have an audience. So I'm going like, but I'm kind of sharp, you know, there's something I can try and do to meet him. So the first conference is over and the business conference is about to start and the Dalai Lama is working a rope line, basically. So I get in the rope line and he's slowly walking down person to person to person. And he's, to, he's right next to me and he grabs my hand while he's talking to somebody else. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, I'm not saying anything or whatever. And he finally looks me in the eye and I'm not, and I said, you know, your, your holiness, you know, I am here to talk about goodness in business. 
And, and he kind of, I'm not so sure he understood, but he kind of, he gives me a beautiful nod. He's holding my hand for five minutes now. And then he, and he continues down the rope line. And I'm like, wow, that's like, that was, that truly was an existential moment. Um, it was really lovely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love that you uh, talk openly about that because, right, I mean, you can have the Dalai Lama at the same talk as someone like you. And, you know, there, there, there doesn't have to be a separation. And that's what, yeah, feels very relevant, especially today to hear that story, because, you know, spirituality can exist in its own silo. But if we kind of integrate that into the way that we also show up in our professional lives and in the way that we, you know, operate businesses, that could also have positive results and results that I think the world really needs right now. And so, you know, kind of shifting gears, you know, you kind of took us on a little tour guide of the word purpose, but I would love to, you know, invite you to kind of help us understand the history of purpose, which you kind of alluded to before. And you've been in this business for the last 35 years, so you've really watched it grow. So, you know, there are words that you kind of threw around before, cause marketing, cause branding. There's also words like conscious capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, and I would just like to place all these words and understand what purpose was then and what is purpose now? What's the old story? What's the new story? Great question. Now, if I had a few hours, I would talk about the whole spectrum, but, and you know, I can talk long, but I'll give you the, the shorthand. In the beginning, it, it was called cause marketing because companies began to market using a cause. And instead of marketing their features and benefits, like the American Express card, they said, we stand for something more broader, but it's short term. Cause marketing was short term, and but it was the term of the day. And for 10 years, a friend of my friend, Sharon Cohen from Reebok, she kept saying, Carol, you got to change the word. You got to change the word. And I said, Sharon, I want to do the work. I've got to do the work first. I've got to lay down the body of work. We've got to like, I could either, I can't do both things. I can't fight to change the name or do the work. So let's do the work first. And she kind of finally gave up on that. But it was in 1998. So think about it, 83 to 98. That's a long time, 15 years. And we finally saw companies like Avon embedding breast cancer throughout what they did. It wasn't just a short-term promotion in a month. It was, And it wasn't just products that turned pink or pink ribbons that they sold, but it was aligning them with not-for-profits, gaining information, sharing it through their Avon associates to their customers, funding um, research, funding all sorts of different things. So they were attacking the whole breast cancer disease. And in those days, in the, in the early days in the 90s, you didn't talk about breasts. And, you know, we launched the Avon Breast Cancer Crusade in 93, and it was, the world was not pink, especially in October then. It wasn't. And Avon, to their wisdom, and interestingly, we were brought into Avon by Jim Preston, their CEO. And he said to um, one of his colleagues, he said, I've heard of this thing called cause marketing. I want to, you know, we, we touch our associates in their head. I want to touch them in their heart. He said, find somebody to help me do this. And I remember the day I'm talking to him in his giant boardroom with, you know, their vision on the wall. Avon will be the company that best serves, you know, the, the needs of women worldwide. And, and in those early days, you had to have CEOs who got it. They didn't, they might not have known how to do it, 
but they understood they needed to stand for more. And that's ultimately, so you, so the second term was cause branding and we actually trademarked. And then it was corporate responsibility and shared value with Michael Porter, which was brilliant and, you know, all sorts of things. And, you know, I always say to anybody I'm talking to, whether it's a student or whether it's a corporate executive, that don't get stuck on the words, understand the objectives of what you're trying to accomplish. And what are you trying to do over what time? Because you need to have aligned objectives with whomever you're working with. You know, otherwise you're going to go in different directions. And so there are many different, now we've been doing this work. So it's aligning a company with a social issue or the environment in a true and deep and authentic way. And by the way, I just launched this amazing essay um, where you, uh, hopefully you'll put it with your um, your listeners um, in the show notes. But it's about, um, you know, it's, it's called What is Your Authentic Purpose in 2021? And I wrote this because purpose is everywhere today. I mean, my joke was when I started, I could have had a dinner for four of us at a little table, you know, in like, you know, Soho, talking about this thing about linking companies with causes. Now there are conferences of tens of thousands of people around the globe talking about all sorts of different types of purpose. And, you know, it's there's sustainability there. There's all different when a market matures, it segments. And so purpose in its many different iterations is segmented. Now, that's a good thing. And there's a lot of good, smart people doing great work. But there's also a lot of purpose washing and or in the previous days, you could call it pink washing or green washing. It's just not doing it deeply doing it for the patina of the cause, but really not having an impact, which really pisses me off. And so so during COVID and during the past year, companies had to be human. They had to really stand for their employees, stand for their communities, help with PPE and, and other things. And then there were some really lame ads happening. Now, I can embrace many of my advertising brethren because they're brilliant. But when they try to do purpose, unfortunately, they don't have the patience or, or it's a different skill set. You know, I don't try to be the brilliant, brilliant, creative, albeit I'm creative. And so you start getting this patina of washing, pink washing. And I'll give you an example, and I hate to pick on Audi, but I will. They, have, they make nice cars. Uh, oh, gosh, about three or four years ago, they did this incredible ad about this d- daughter, and she's in a soapbox derby, and she's be- you know she's racing against all the boys, and you don't even know it's a girl. It's a father talking to somebody in a helmet, soapbox derby. At the end, they win. Off comes a helmet. Out comes this beautiful mane of hair, and the father walks off with his arm around the daughter, and it says something about you know equality of opportunity. Great, great ad. Everybody clapped. It was lovely. Two days later, there's an expose in the New York Times or elsewhere that says there are no women on the board at Audi. You know, their gender equity was horrible. And so that's purpose washing. And sorry to pick on you, Audi. I hope you've gotten better. Um, You make a nice car. So and there's, you know, Pepsi and the Kardashians and the protests giving the Pepsi to the cop. Lambasted, albeit Pepsi is now totally in a great place, a great place in terms of their purpose and their sustainability efforts and such. But three or four years ago, it was horrible. So I wrote this essay because we're at a crossroads, and especially for practitioners and companies and not for profits or their partners or such, we can do 
purpose washing or we can do authentic purpose. And authentic purpose is long-term. It comes from the values of the company. It engages the employees. It, it has innovation and it has true impact. It has goals and impact. So I wrote this essay. So I hope that you put it in the show notes. You have to read it with like a beer or, or you know, a glass of wine because it's like 4,000 words. But a lot of it came from my podcast. So I included, I went back and I read some of my favorite podcasts and I have Mars in there and I have AB InBev and Tata consultancy. And of course I have to have Unilever because I love and then PNG. So it's got a lot of wisdom from those that I interviewed, but it also talks about what truly, how do you architect authentic purpose? So definitely we'll include this in the show notes. And I am very curious about these words. How do you architect purpose? And I want to tie it into my next question and curiosity. And you touched on this a little, but I think when we fast forward purpose to present day and especially to this turning point in how, you know, businesses and brands conduct business as usual, things have really changed, especially in the wake of Black Lives Matter reigniting after George Floyd's death. Um, And we saw businesses responding in so many different ways, like you mentioned, declarations of intent purpose washing, um, donations, like woke vertising campaigns, all the woke vertising, right? And all the way through to actually trying to um, close the gap between intent and impact, right? Through hiring practices and operationalizing these buzzwords. And accountability and activism were also words that we saw come together with business, which was, you know, a breath of fresh air finally, right? But, you know, how does this actually look like from the inside out? And maybe you can speak to, I don't know, some of your favorite case studies or companies that you just included in this article that you wrote um, about how they are operationalizing purpose and what are some low-hanging fruit moments and what are some bigger aspirations that they've experienced? Excellent words, operationalizing. That's a great word because, you know, it's, it's like, it's how are you embedding it? I just gave, it's interesting, I just gave a speech at Sustainable Brands on the evolution of purpose-driven leadership. And I talked about the four C's, which are easy for your listeners to remember. The first is commitment. And so when, when a company has determined its purpose, how closely is embedded it to their business strategy? And Unilever, basically Alan Jope, says there is no difference between our purpose strategy and our business strategy. The second C is about culture. And truly, purpose, when it's real, has to be embedded in the culture of the company. It needs to be led by the behavior of the CEO and the C-suite, but it needs to fall down into everything, fall into KPIs in terms of how you're being judged, in terms of gender equity, in terms of your, your responsibilities to your employees, your communities, your customers, and shareholders usually come last. But if you do the other things first, then you're going to get a better return. Then the third C is colleagues, usually employees, but I needed another C, so I called it colleagues. And then the four, and it's how you really treat them. And then the fourth C has to do with collaboration because the challenges, even pre-COVID, are so great that you need to, you need to give up. It's all about me as a corporation, and it should be all about we. And it's coming, I'll give you a very simple example, and then I'll, I'll talk to you one about racial equity. The cup challenge, okay? When you go into a Starbucks or a Dunkin' Donuts, I love Dunkin', that, you know, those cups, 
those billions and billions and billions of cups that are not recyclable and they end up in the trash or the waste or the river or the ocean or such. It's very, very, and people don't understand. It's very difficult to make a hot container that's, that keeps the heat from hurting your hand that's also degradable. It took years, years, and you'd think it's easy. It was not easy. And all of these, I think McDonald's, Starbucks, and Dunkin', there might have been a few others. It was the Cup Collaborative. And they came together in collaboration because there was a problem that they all had and they had to solve it. So that's a great for the C on collaboration. Now, to answer, I'll give you a great case history about racial equity. So in 2015, and P&G is interesting because I work with P&G, I work with Unilever. And I believe that Unilever really became the bellwether, the platinum standard for creating purpose-driven brands and truly embedding in them real purpose that got real results. I mean, the, the great numbers for Unilever, and they have like 400 brands, but of the 20, I think six or seven purpose brands, Dove, you know, Dove or Lifebuoy or Ben and Jerry's, you know, they have purpose at the center. They grew 69% faster than the regular non-purpose brands and delivered 75% of the results, which is Huge, 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 huge. But Unilever is very humble because in their 10th anniversary video, and if any of your listeners really wants to learn about purpose, just learn about, just study Unilever. Go to their website. They share everything. There's lots of great stuff on there so you can learn. But in their in their 10th anniversary video, and they were led by Paul Pullman, who is one of my favorite people in the entire world. I mean, he was the CEO who truly put social purpose and purpose on the map, and he continues to do unbelievably brilliant things. And he also said, by the way, this is another important thing. He said, with the social, with the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, they and I hope your listeners understand what they are. But it's organizing the world about all these different, you know, social environmental issues and how companies can get organized. $12 trillion of opportunity if companies invest in the sustainable development goals. And there's 17 goals. There's lots of sub goals, but there's also 400 million jobs, new jobs. So, so that's just an aside. So I love Paul Pullman. Anyway, P&G started a little bit later, but um, Mark Pritchard, who is their global head of, of brand and, and CMO and a much higher title than that, he totally understands they sell, they touch 5 billion people a day. Five billion. Unilever is about two and a half billion. Five billion people a day. And they study the, you know, what are the insights of a consumer? Where are they in their life stage? What is a real need? And so in 2015, PNG really looked at their black consumers and their people of color consumers. And they said, well, what's what's their need? What's on their mind? And it was systemic racism and the fear of mothers. You know, truly sending their child out, walking to school, walking after school. I mean, all the things that happen. So they did a short film and it's called The Talk and it's absolutely beautiful. And it's about starts out with a with a black mother talking to her daughter. And she said, you know, and she's the daughter's like maybe seven years old. And she said, that's not a good word. You know, and she's talking, obviously she's been called a really bad word by some child in school and, and the mother's trying to talk to her. Then it flips to a mother talking to a son, young son, then a mother talking to her son who's going to be going to drum practice. And he's like 17 years old or 16. And he's going to be walking down the city streets. And then there's, then it then it turns to a mother talking to the daughter in a car and she's teaching her daughter how to drive. And she says, well, you know, I, you know, you got to be careful. And the daughter's going, well, I'm always careful. No, you really she's not going to be okay. 
And the mother goes, no, no, no. This is about you getting stopped and not coming home. And you get chills. You get chills listening to this. And it, it's truly, and it ends with, you know, the, the, the black mother in the beginning says to the daughter, you're beautiful, you know? And, and, and so then it, 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 at the end of it says, it's time to have the talk. That was 2017. Then they did the look. Then they did the choice. And you would see in some of the specials, like Oprah Winfrey had a special during COVID, you thought that P&G just created that spot. No, 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 they didn't. And these are short films. They're not ads, they're short films. They did it years ago. So what has P&G done? So they do these films because they want to be provocative. They want people to think about these issues, but they have done more to your point. How do they operationalize? So they now have racial goals in their management. And they actually say, we're not there yet, but we will report back to you. They've done other things. Who was shooting behind the lens of the camera? It was always men. It's not men anymore. It's women, women of color. And in fact, they said the ads that are done by women have a better return on investment. Oh, my God. And then, yeah, then in their ads, they cast much more gender equitable, racial equitable people in their ads. And I remember Mark Pritchard said in a meeting once, he said, I don't ever want to sit down and look at an ad that doesn't look like the people that we are serving. So, and then the last thing they did for people like me, they have massive amount of resources to teach us how to be anti-racist. So they have really operationalized systemic, and they do other things in terms of their purpose, but that, I've studied them and I utilize them in my speeches and, and I, your, your listeners got to go find the talk, watch the look and watch the choice. It, it'll give you chills. It's a company that's truly trying to make a difference. And I know that so many young people today and people go, Oh, companies don't care. They do, you know, you, you, um, Unilever and PG, they're doing this because it's good business. It's good business because their employees want to work for a company that shows its values in action. They want to do something that's not just selling stuff and they want to have an impact on the world. And if you can make it work and make a profit, what a better way to have a job or be a consumer or just advocate for the company. Right. It's um, the triple bottom line, which segues really nicely into my next question, because I know that you um, are a fan of B Corps. You had uh, someone from B Corps on your podcast and I wanted to understand because I've also watched B Corps and I personally always try to choose the, the B Corps company over the non-B Corps company. It's become so trendy, especially this last year. And as you've said, the numbers don't lie. Companies that are doing good for their stakeholders are generally outperforming uh, their counterparts and their competitors that aren't. So it's good for business and it's good for people and it's good for planet. But my question to you is, while purpose lives on sort of a spectrum and every company is, you know, at a different stage, what is the gold standard in purpose? Like, how would you measure a company that's like really advanced versus middle of the line versus just getting started? Is it the B core? Is it not the B core? Is it a combination of things? And for people who don't know much about B core too, if you want to also just share your lens on, on what it is and, and how you see this certification playing a role in this whole conversation. Well, I don't think, okay. So if you, there's C Corps, there's LLCs, there's different types of incorporation. And B Corp is a legal 
certification or it's a legal document. And it actually, it's interesting. We did, B Corp had to get approved, registered in every single state, one by one by one by one. And when I was at Edelman, because I was there for five years, we actually did the Delaware certification. And I knew, because you know, a lot of corporations that go to Delaware because there's also favorable taxes and all sorts of things. When B Corp got approved and registered in Delaware, that they became legit. And basically the way a B Corp works is that the company is allowed to make a less of a profit if, and it does so by investing in societal or environmental activities. That's a simple way. And it's in their articles of incorporation. So that's the simple way. There's a, but when you register to get your B, your B certification, there's a lot you got to do. You know, you, you've got, it's about your policies and procedures and all sorts of things. So it is not for the faint of heart. Um, I am not a B Corp. I've looked at it. Uh, many of our colleagues in my purpose collaborative, which is how we, when we want to get bigger, my new model, I had the way back when, when I was at Kona Cone, we had like 115 people and it was a traditional agency. Then I went to Edelman. Well, I sold it to a global conglomerate, tried to go global. Didn't, it was okay, but not great. Then I went to Edelman to go global and private, which was really cool. And I have great reverence for Richard Edelman, but they were still a generalist. And the purpose team I had, which was a hundred people around the globe, we still had to, you know, balance out our work with other work, you know, defending like Chevron or such. So I left five and a half years ago to start Carol Cohn on purpose, double entendre, because I saw a new way of servicing clients. And that is that we were very flat. There's only seven of us at the center right now, but we create bespoke teams so if I need video, I've got great video partners. If I need something that's a depth in sport, I have purpose and sport partner. If I have somebody that has amazing creative that can do ads, I've got that kind of partner. So going back to B Corps, it's, it's fat. There are some, it's, there's only 4,000 B Corps around the, around the globe. The interesting one that we're looking at is Denone, which is very, very large. And I think they're the largest right now. And then there's Natura, who's a B Corp. That is like the Avon of Brazil. And I've actually been there and they're very spiritual. They have all sorts of like gemstones in the corners of their factory. Great amethysts, really. And and places where you can sit outside and reflect. It's very cool. But they bought Avon. So they're going to, you know, become, we believe, uh, Danon keeps saying they don't want to be the largest. They want Natura to be the largest B Corp. So you can have big ones and you can have small ones. Basically, I see all of these different movements. As I said, it's maturing. The desire for business to be more than just providing profits for shareholders, that train has left the station. It's great. It is that, you know, stakeholder capitalism, balancing out the needs of employees and your supply chain and your communities and your customers and your share. If you do those, then you will get, you will be much more profitable. And there's some really interesting data that just came out today. Morgan Stanley just had a report that there's been a lot of analysis of companies during COVID and their returns in very investment funds. And the companies that are sustainable are returning a higher investment return than, than, a, than a plain old company. And it's not, as Morgan Stanley and others are seeing this, it's quite 
profound. So you can do good, do well, and be profitable at the same time. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I also want to build on what you just shared about Morgan Stanley with um, some research that you created in your Purpose Paradox report, which mentioned that 86% of B2B companies say that having a defined purpose is important to their growth, but only 24% say that purpose is embedded, operationalized, all these synonyms into their business and influencing how they operate, innovate, and engage with society overall. So there's this gap, right? It's quite large. Why do you feel like, despite all the evidence, despite all of the momentum in this direction, that businesses are not closing this gap between intent and impact? What challenges do you see they experience the most? Or is it just you know, just such a big shift that it just takes time to close this gap and really begin to operationalize purpose. I think I think that's what it is. I think that the B2B world frequently sells on features and benefits. And if you're in manufacturing and you have a pipe, you know, your pipe has got to be this long and this wide and, you know, performing, et cetera, et cetera. And it's got to be this much less than the next guy. And there's actually a wonderful, there's a, a company called Charlotte Pipe that is that has purpose and the purpose is about their it's amazing because they they spend so much time on their people and taking care of their people and that they want to have be the best pipe company in the world and they have fabulous ads their ads are funnier than funny and i i heard them at a at a b2b conference basically remember i said that when markets mature they segment and so um the b2b world <clears throat> in certain um milieu like financial services or banking, they need to, to hire and to attract the best and the brightest. So they need to stand for something beyond just making money. And so some of those B2B worlds earlier on started embracing, and they also had to, I mean, they have CRA credits, so they have to invest in the community. So some of the banks, they had to do it, but could they do more? And when we worked with PNC Bank, their CEO knew that they had to do more. And um, they were both commercial as well as a consumer. And we created this amazing initiative for them called PNC Grow Up Great. They were the first corporation to, to invest in early childhood education for underserved. And it, it, it was, again, led by the CEO, led by a wonderful head of their foundation, Eva Bloom, who I adore to this day, and their CEO, um, Jim Rohr. And this is one of those great it's a great story. It's one of those, you know, you're, we did our homework and we really looked to find, you know, what, what did they want to accomplish and who was their, who were their core stakeholders and what was a need. And we found out that three and four-year-olds must be prepared for kindergarten or they will fall back, fall back, fall back, and they will not be successful in society. And PNC is a bank. And if they have an unstable community, they will not succeed. And so, you know, we presented this idea to the CEO, to Jim Rohr, and they loved the idea. He loved the idea. He said, that makes tremendous sense. And there was nobody else doing it. It was very, it was green space or, or white space, but it would take a long time to really educate all sorts of influencers, whether it was their, their depositors or whether it was their partners or communities, that early childhood education quality was absolutely needed. But so, we, you know, we presented to him and we said, we gave him all the background and all the, the data. Great, great, great. And then we said with a gulp, five years, $50 million. 
because you need to have a significant commitment. And he paused and he paused and he paused. And at that point, when you're a firm and you're an agency and you're presenting an idea, you're about to like throw up really. And he, he turns to us and he says, it's a great idea, but it's not big enough. And he says, 10 years, $100 million. And I have to give PNC so much credit because to, they've been doing this for over 15 years now, and they've invested over a half a billion dollars in early childhood education. And they have, in the early years, nobody believed them. Uh, we partnered them. This is another great thing. We, we always have to bring it. A bank doesn't know about early childhood. So we said, you have to have partners. And so we suggested Head Start. It's a logical one. Um, we went to National Head Start. They had never done this, but we got them to partner. And then we went with one that was really kind of out of the box, Sesame Workshop. And, you know, now you say, oh, yeah. But in those days, they went, what? And it's $2 million for what? And it's Big Bird and Cookie Monster, what? And when we launched, it was amazing. And then, you know, a, a year or two later, you had the CEO doing, no kidding, and an in, kind of a podcast or radio interview with Rosita. You know, so it was like, and it's just been great that they have an advisory board that continues from the first days on. PNC is brilliant about partnerships and they've made a huge commitment on an ongoing basis and they've truly moved the needle on early childhood. It's one of those bipartisan issues that gets support. And we, I, I hope, keep my fingers crossed, it'll be universal pre-K in the Biden administration. I forget exactly where you said this, but in your recent Fast Company article, you talked about six trends um, for purpose in 2021. And I think in there you mentioned, right, that um, businesses contributed, you know, more to these social issues than, you know, consumers could even fathom. And they are taking a political stance like they have to. The private sector has the resources to do things that sometimes the government can't do as quickly in the urgent manner that. Yeah. And and so I think it's it's very relevant that, you know, we're tying business together with social issues in early education and with politics because they all need to work together and it's not so siloed anymore. Yeah. The political ground is really, it's scary. Um, CEOs are being dragged into the political um, milieu. I always say that, especially with what happened on January 6th, and and I was very, you know, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And I was very, very pleased that so many companies of all different sizes just pulled their, their PAC donations and things like that and said, we're just not going to play. So, which was really, really good. But I interrupted you. So go on. No, no, that's I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, I, the, my next question was more on, you know, this purpose evolution and how industries that touch it are all going to need to shift as well alongside these businesses. So, so like PR, public relations and advertising and marketing that that sort of touch business strategy and are partnering with brands and businesses to to move the needle and to continue to tell the story. You know, I want to kind of understand because you, you know, came from Edelman as well. So you sat on the PR side, but you said in the beginning as well uh, of the show that, you know, PR purpose and, you know, the way that we tell stories needs to be integrated more for purpose to really move forward and have its potential. So how do you feel like and speaking from someone who began this purpose collaborative, right? How do you feel that the industries that tell the story, right, will need to shift to support the brands and the businesses that they partner with? Uh, well, I think 
there are the good news today with you can work from anywhere. And I think that during the pandemic, there's a lot of professionals just have left advertising and PR and consulting firms and whatever. They just can't deal with some of the things they have to do or the pace and speed at which things don't happen or the trade-offs or, or being able to say truth to power. So I, I don't, you know, I have a bit of a, maybe is it a chip on my shoulder or whatever, but I think that purpose needs to be done. Authentic purpose needs to be done by, by people who have done the work. And so myself, and that's why we have the purpose collaborative because, you know, my firm is seven people or so, but with the purpose collaborative, I'm 400 or 800. And I can pick and choose from others who are purpose at their core. I think that the ad world is not purpose at their core. They love the advertising world loves the creative loves the creative and can come up with incredibly creative stories, but you've got to have a deep keel. If you don't, you will be inauthentic. You will be purpose washing. The same thing with the PR world, the, the patience and the depth, and it's very much about strategy and really going deep to find the, where can we play? What is authentic to my business? What builds off of my core competencies as a business? And that PR firms are more storytellers, which is great. And they can do great storytelling, um, whether short form, long form, purchased, earned or owned or whatever. But they're not pure purpose professionals. Say that three times fast. Pure purpose professionals. <laughs> anyway, and so professionals, right. And so I, I think that I, you know, what we're seeing, we are leading the purpose strategy for so many of our clients. And we play nicely in the sandbox with our ad agency or their PR firm or their social media firm. But we are helping to, to one, keep them honest, two, develop an incredible insight for the great idea. And, and I, I, we cannot leave this conversation without talking about my special Aflac duck. Because in, in my career, you know, people always say, which is your favorite client? I have many. PNC is one. But, you know, Aflac, Aflac. Aflac and all the Aflac duck. Um, if you're not in the U.S. Or, J- or or Japan, you don't know the Aflac duck. But um, it's a brilliant story that you know was an unknown company and their supplemental insurance. So they are sold through employers to employees to supplement your standard insurance. And um, basically, a brilliant ad agency came up with this duck and put them on the map. And like 95% of the country of the U.S. Understand, knows who Aflac is. So they have this duck and he's worth about 20 billion, no kidding, on the balance sheet. Then they've also got their philanthropy and they've been donating for 25 years to pediatric cancer in Atlanta because they're, they, they're in Columbus, Georgia, outside of Atlanta. And they started as a cancer product. But long story short, I won't tell it here, but the CEO ultimately wanted to get involved with pediatric cancer, and they've got a pediatric cancer unit at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. But the two were totally separate. Now, Aflac is a B2B. They're not a, they're not a consumer product. They're a B2B product. So that's one of our B2B paradoxes. You know, They have great purpose, but it's not integrated. Anyway, their CMO, we had worked with her um, when she was at Western Union. She went to Aflac. I kind of follow old clients when I have good relationships. And she said, Carol, you got to come in here and do your magic. You got to bring these two together because that's what our employees are expecting. Our agents are expecting. Our customers are expecting, et cetera. We need to stand for more than enough. Our duck is wonderful and he's funny and he's brilliant, but we need more. And they have this asset 
in $125 million in pediatric cancer. Long story short, again, bringing up my brilliant, dare I say, superhuman power is connection making. And I was having lunch with a young man, Aaron Horowitz, and he has this fabulous small company called Sproutel. And he makes social robots for kids with, with health problems. And the first one he made was Jerry the Bear for kids with um, diabetes. And it showed the child how to prick themselves and understand, you know, their numbers and things like that. So we're having lunch and um, he's part of my purpose collaborative. And he says, Hey, Carol, what's up? What are you doing? You know, what's going on? And um, I say, you know, we're about to start work with Aflac. Boom. You couldn't see it, but over my head, Sproutel social robots, Aflac duck collide over my head. And in my brain, I say, I'm going to create a social robot duck. It was some amazing. And Aaron goes like, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And I go, Aaron, I had this amazing idea. He goes, what's your idea? I said, do not tell anybody. We're going to create a social robot duck for kids with cancer. And, and we did it. You know, you got to go through all the machinations. You know, we got the business and we we did the we did the you know all the background and found out the kids have kids in pediatric cancer go through a thousand days of treatments. It's really they're lonely, they're scared, they're, all their routine is upended. But the one thing they have is play, and play gives them agency. And so our idea was to create a duck. So we interviewed kids. So that's why Sproutel is brilliant. They interviewed over 100 kids and doctors and caregivers, kids as young as three. What do you want in this duck? And, the, you know, they didn't want a long neck duck. That's a scary thing. They wanted something roundy and moundy. They wanted the duck to purr. Now, ducks don't purr, but kids going through cancer treatment want a duck that purrs. The duck purrs. The duck has three motors, four patents pending. It has an emoji that you put emojis, little emoji discs to its chest and it, and it reads various emotions. So the child can, you think a child's, you know, they've had chemo, they're six years old, the nurse comes in the next day, the child doesn't want to talk because they revert much younger when they're sick. So the nurse says, how do you, put, how do you feel? The child picks the green emoji, puts it to the duck's chest and the duck goes, duck goes quack, quack, quack. And so a couple of days later, the child's feeling better. So the nurse comes in and says, how are you feeling? And the kid takes the funny rat orange one and puts it on his chest. And the duck goes, quack, 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 quack. And so the duck becomes this personal friend of the child. And it, it, it has heartbeats and it purrs and you can stroke it, et cetera, et cetera. You can sleep with it. It has some music. Um, and for the older kids, it also has augmented reality app. And so we created it. And so it was just in boards and stuff. And so we, we presented it to Dan Amos, the CEO. And again, it's one of those, you know, moments and we're presenting and Aaron's doing most of the presenting and the CEO is dead pan. He's not, he doesn't have an emotion. And I'm going, Oh my God, this is PNC again. I don't know what's going to happen. He gets up and he starts walking in circles. And then he turns around and he says, this is the best idea I ever heard. And we then, yeah, it was so exciting. Of course, we can't cheer. He leaves and we're going, hey, yay, we're high-fiving and everything. And then we went through the pains. You know, Aaron spent the year um, with his partner, Hannah Chung, and they were, you know, talked to all these kids and the doctors and whatever. The brilliance, by the way, of Aflac was that, well, two things. One, besides that, that Dan Amos agreed to it, he named the duck. 
and he named it My Special Aflac Duck. And that was great because in publicity, you couldn't have Aflac's name cut out. And he wanted people to know what they were doing because he invested over $4 million to develop this little duck. And now they're giving it, they're donating it to any child newly diagnosed with pediatric cancer through their hospital because part of their, their hospital regime. So anybody listening, ideally in the U S or Japan, cause that's where they're distributed. You can, you know, you can go to my special Aflac, you can go to Aflac cancer, Aflac childhood cancer campaign online and you can like, you know, find out all the information. So, and and then, you know, when we introduced it, we wanted the world to know about it. And so we said to Aflac, you got to go to the Consumer Electronics Show. And they went, what? Carol, you're nuts. You're crazy. We should go to toy. No, this is not a toy. This is a technological product. So, so we, we also applied. They have an award before you go there. And they had tech for a better world. And so we... My brilliant partner, um, Talia Bosch, she writes the award entry. Brilliant. And we win it. We win it. So we beat like 250 different, you know, technological, com- you know, ideas from around the globe. So we go to the C- CES. So if anybody's gone to CES, 180,000 people. I mean, it is like jam-packed. Now, I wouldn't go there with COVID and they didn't have it this past year. But we had a 10 by 10 booth at the beginning of all where the entrepreneurs are. And the media was just mesmerized. Because we were so anti, we want a refrigerator that talked. We want a 5G phone. We want a car that was self-driving. We were a duck. And we got 2 billion impressions in five days. And then Time Magazine named us one of the best products of the year. South by Southwest, we were people's choice and best technology. We went to Cannes. Uh, He was actually on a TV show there. That's where I got called the Purpose Queen by the BBC, which I thought was great. But the most important thing, he's in, he's in the arms of 10,000 children at this point. And he also, you know, you don't always do this for, you do it for the heart, but you also want to help the brand. And so Aflac did research and they found out that 15% of the adult population in the United States knew about my special Aflac duck and that almost 100% said they would be open to buying an Aflac product. So it had the business. See, this is where this has to go because it can't just be about if it's philanthropy in a down year, you won't have money. It has to be embedded in the business to build, to help their at their 17,000 Aflac agents have a different discussion with their customers, their employees feeling incredible, and as well, their reputation being built, which has an impact on their stock price. So it's all of these things integrating together into one system that's authentic and lasts over time. Wow. What a story, Carol. It's, 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 it, it makes me like so, you know. Now, I have to say another thing because you got a lot of people listening. We want to do this for autism. I am convinced, not a duck, but I am convinced that children in the center of the spectrum, if they're really off the spectrum, we can't reach them. But I believe that, in, that we could take the brilliance of Aaron Horowitz and Sproutel our brilliance about working with, unfortunately, I don't think there's any companies that truly support autism. There's no business reason per se. There's no drug. So I'm hoping that there's some high net worth individuals listening to this or some philanthropists, because if any billionaire out there or half a billionaire, this would be a drop in the ocean and we could reach so many children with autism and help to bring them out of the worlds that they're in and to help them with their communications and their comfort. So that's one of my goals before I retire. (laughs) 
Well, we're definitely going to create that, you know, call to action. And it's funny, as you were telling me about the Affleck duck, I kept thinking autism because there's been so much research done into how robotics can help children on the autistic spectrum. So it seems like a no-brainer, but I guess... Again, what you're talking about is integrating, right, the social issue, the technological execution, the brains and the strategy and the insights and the creativity with brand and business and integrating that into the strategy from the inside out. So, yeah, you know, you know, what's funny is that when we came the, the year after all of this incredible, you know, just amazing accolades and awareness that I, I was, we started a campaign called Mascots for Good. You know, I was, and we did analysis in our company, like Mr. Peanut and, you know, who are the Bumblebee, you know, whatever, Talking Tuna. And, you know, we looked at all these mascots and we were convinced. And I, I we, we had a speech at the um, <clears throat> advertising week about mascots for good. And I was convinced I mean, I pitched my friends at General Mills and I know a lot of them, but no, we don't have enough money. Betty Crocker, yeah, whatever. I was convinced we could find some other mascots we could recreate. And I actually pitched Mr. Peanut. And I said, you know, remember when they killed him in the Super Bowl? He died. Oh, my God. And I said, bring him back as, you know, let's bring him back as something that can teach kids about anaphylactic shock and all this sort of thing. I didn't get, I did not get crickets from the ad agency, crickets. And then they brought back BB Peanut. So- I think somebody's going to buy planters. Maybe they're they're listening to this and they'll go, yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to create something that's going to help kids. Well, you have um, you have the blueprint now, Carol. So you know, the sky's the limit. And I think going back to your original superpower, it's that, yeah, it's creativity is taking two things that don't normally cross over and bringing them together. And I think companies and businesses and consumers are, and especially Gen Zers, who are you know the truth telling generation. Everyone, everyone's waiting for the next big idea. So I, I think, you know, these ideas won't be landing on deaf ears for too long. Definitely not. So, you know, as we move the conversation into envisioning, I know I already mentioned this article that you wrote in Fast Company about the trends. And I think the the point in there that I keep coming back to as I hear your stories is this story doing versus before the storytelling, right? And I love that. I don't know if like that word is new or if you coined it, but I think that kind of summarizes where I think brands are at or are wishing to go in the direction of because you can't really tell a good story unless you've done something that can stand on two legs. So if you want to like talk more about that or just one of the trends that you feel like is most alive for you right now and and you would like to maybe broadcast to more people, what's the one that people can really latch onto and make it their mantra as they navigate 2021 and and you know the space of innovation and purpose? Oh wow, that's a, that's a broad question. Well, if you're a company, the number one stakeholder is your employees. In my four C's, it's colleagues. Um, and it is that it's interesting that the uh, CHRO Lena Nair from uh, Unilever said that people are the only competitive advantage, only competitive advantage. Everything else can be matched. And so when you have purpose truly in an organization, you attract the best people, you unleash amazing creativity and the innovation that comes from that and the performance that comes from that is extraordinary. So I've been talking about people as the center of purpose for over 20 years. 
and nobody listened to me. Now they're listening to me, which not to me, they just recognize that if you don't, you know, and I was really glad to see so many companies during COVID, they just turned to take care of their people first. That was really, really important. And I, and we're, you know, I hate to say it guys, we're not going back to normal. We're not going back to normal. The world has forever changed. And I think that people slowed down. They were closer to their families. I think closer to their neighbors that working from home is, you know, people aren't going to be all congregated in offices. Um, there's going to be back and forth. There's going to be um, new, new, new social issues. I don't know if I'm going to answer your question, but there's new social issues that need to be addressed. And it's everything from, um, you know, small farmers, um, it's it's mental health, mental health, young people and mental health. Uh, we did a piece of research with Points of Light, and they are the volunteerism organization tr- started by George Bush. It'll be a thousand points of light. And basically, young people, they said the number one issue is mental health. I mean, the next generation said health care because when you get to, you know, but mental health is absolutely crazy. So there's so many different issues that are now childcare, working from home, loneliness. Um, I think there's going to be a better reverence for the elderly since the elderly were so decimated as well as blacks and people of color during COVID. So I, I think the world is going to be the next normal and the next, and also then climate change, you know, the existential issue of our time. If we do not address it, we will not have a planet to survive. We will not. Our children or our children's children, they will be wearing oxygen tanks and face masks and the weather will be horrible and there'll be no place to live. And they'll have to be living on Mars so or, or the moon. So I'm not so sure I answered your question per se. But I also have to say, by the way, that article in Fast Company was written in collaboration with the Purpose Collaborative. So every year we ask our partners in the Purpose Collaborative, our members, to really from where, and they're all over the world. And they're from all over different, you know, types of purpose. You know, what do you see? And so um, I get a little bit of the credit, but I want to give most of the credit to them because uh, they're wonderful partners. And we're actually going to have a virtual summit uh, next month. So that's going to be great. Wonderful. Thank you for giving them the deserved shout out. And, you know, just to build on what you just shared, it makes me think about the word sustainability. And we had a woman on the show who works for a change agency that helps brands um, develop a sustainability vision and strategy. And I feel like the conversation about sustainability is, is still about environmentalism and climate change, but it's also much more than that. It's also about human rights. It's also about how do you build, like you said, a, a culture of people that can access the the best parts of who they are so they can do the best work, but feel included in that, feel like, you know, what they have to say is important. And I think it's taking the people conversation and elevating a little bit to, to be about how do we recruit the best, but then bring out the best once they're, once they're in the desk. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And you know that Peter Drucker made this incredible quote, and I use it a lot in my speeches. Said every social and environmental issue is an economic opportunity in disguise. That's it. A new level of cooperation. Every social and environmental issue is an economic opportunity in disguise. Yeah, you know, Paul Pullman says the same thing. Um, you know, in terms of uh, you know thirteen trillion dollars in the SDGs, if you figure out how you align with them, pretty cool. It's a, it's 
Yeah, it, it's a it's a great time to do this work. That's what I say to young people. And every I get five, probably on average, uh, LinkedIn's um, a week saying, "I want to be in purpose. What do I do?" And I say, "Listen to my podcast, Purpose Three Hundred and Sixty. Read my newsletter. But there's a lot of other great people out there too. Follow Paul Pullman." You know, it's and you don't have to. It's not that far out of reach today. I mean, you may not get the purpose job, but you could be in a work in a purposeful company um, and there'll be more and more and more. There's so much innovation and so many smaller businesses that will survive after COVID. So to round out our conversation, I always like to ask our guests if you can leave. I mean, you've dropped so much wisdom today and really amazing anecdotes and stories about your work and purpose. But a message or a question that folks can reflect on beyond this conversation, and maybe because you know, you, you're kind of the nucleus and you connect to many different types of people. So maybe a message or question for someone who is just beginning their purpose journey and maybe one to someone who just really wants to do an Affleck duck in 2021 <laughs> or just, I don't know, something that comes to you to, yeah, leave a pearl of wisdom for us to think about beyond this conversation. Well, if you're younger, there, there's this great organization I was on the board for nine years called Net Impact, and it's and it is it, it was for graduate students, um, mostly MBA students, and there are chapters all around in the U.S. and around the globe. But now they've also gone to college campuses, and it's people, you know, it's young people that want to make a better world, and so join Net Impact. You can go to their conference. They have a conference every year. So that so that's one way to do it. Um, I, I think that today, oh, there's so much content. Um, you got to be a great student. You, you can't expect, uh, for there's so many people that are lined up that want to do this work. You damn well better do your homework and show how um, passionate you are about it and how much you're a self-learner. And because the next guy or gal wants it. So, you know, you've got to work hard. There are no... You know, during the dot-com boom, I just, I I hated it because you had these kids coming out of college. They were demanding $100,000 with no, with no, you know, experience. And, you know, and it, I knew the dot-com boom was going to blow up when we got pitched by a cosmetics company that never was sold face-to-face, but said, we're going to sell online. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, we'll pay you 40, they're paying ridiculous fees, $40,000 a month to make us famous. Cause you know, they had to quickly, there was a window and, and I knew there's nobody that's going to buy a cosmetics line online that, you know, unless you had bazillion dollars of advertising, you got to touch, touch it and feel it, whatever. Anyway, so that busted, you know, today it's, it's a longer haul. Um, companies that have purpose positions, are hiring people with advanced degrees, you know, in sustainability and in business and in science and in all sorts of things. So, you know, if you're young and you want to do this, you got to do your homework and you got to make sure your resume is got, you know, have you volunteered? You know, you can get a lot of experience in an NGO. And some people say, how do I get it? After college, go to an NGO. You won't get paid well, but you get to learn a lot. You know, so that's a way to, to do it. That's what I did. Okay, there you go. Um, and there are lots of great NGOs, big and small. Um, and then you have, you're talking about, you know, more of a, how do you do a duck? Okay, so that's that's a harder one. 
and metaphorically speaking, like how do you do something at the caliber of Affleck Duck? A bat duck. Oh my God. Well, you know, that's what I'm saying to clients today because they're going, oh, you need a duck. You want to build your you need a duck. And they're going like, what? And I go, let me explain. And they go, okay, I got it. Um, it it's a question of one, you got to find the insight. So you've got to find the insight of your target audience because that's truly what you can build great strategy off of and then off of the strategy, great creative, and be open to very strange bedfellows. You know, social robots, an Aflac duck worth $20 billion. And then you need a little bit of luck because this is still, you know, you've got a changing of the CEO. They're getting younger and they understand the pressures of young people and, and transparency today. Um, it's not easy to balance all the things on a CEO's plate. It is a bear, you know, in terms of, you know, especially if you're public. Um, you know, I think a lot of companies are, are staying private and rightly so. So I, I think there's a lot of things to balance. And if you want to be in that at the table, you're going to have to know your, your the finance side, the business side, the social side. It's a lot. And then you need a little bit of luck. You know, that the gods, that the luck gods are looking down on you and you surround yourself with people who will tell truth to power. I think that's really important. And then some more luck, you know, some magic dust. Maybe at the Dalai Lama meeting, holding your hand. <laughs> Oh, maybe that helps. I don't know. Just take a long time to, to kind of pay off. But but that we've got a we've got some new things cooking. We're we got a really brilliant idea that we're taking to a few people right now. So we'll see if they agree. Okay. Just keep on going. And I think, you know, what you just said about juggling a lot, but also it presents this opportunity to get curious, you know, and to not just rely on like what you learn in the textbooks at business school, but you know, just being a cultural anthropologist of what's happening and what people are talking about, you know, on the screen, of course, for now. But what is culture trying to tell you and how can you be in this dynamic conversation with it? Totally. Oh, you're, you're so smart. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. The challenge is creating something that is long term versus fleeting. And, and, and how do you balance like that little duck will be there for children with cancer for forever. Um, you, know, you know, can you take the app and can you make it into VR one day? Yeah, you could, you know. Oh, by the way, they have Bluetooth. So if a kid's in the hospital walking past another one, they talk to each other. They're, I know Aaron, Aaron, Aaron Horowitz is just, he's such a sweetheart. He's a great, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant developer. He's just really, really great. Right. And it's also, you know, something too about introducing a social impact robotic duck to a child who is um, beating cancer is that gives them hope one day, oh, great, I can use technology for good, right? Because technology opens up its own can of worms in terms of, you know, how do we really use this for good um, versus robbing people of, you know, just basic social skills or just attention spans and the long list of other things that technology can be abused for versus used for. So... Yeah. And, and the technology world is behind in terms of purpose. They have been, you know, they're very much a part of culture. And we've seen this during COVID. And, um, you know, we work with Microsoft twice and Microsoft today is great because they have an amazing CEO. I mean, Bill Gates was amazing, but he was about the technology. And Satya Nadella, he's about empathy and he is about creating a company of, they talked about not know-it-alls, but, but, you know, listeners and learn-it-alls. 
Um, and I, I, great shout out for Microsoft because I just have to say this. They have, I think, the best employee giving matching program around $15,000 that if you donate $15,000, they will match it. And, and they have other, other great things that they're doing. Um, the evolution of that company is truly amazing. So, you know, you, a company can change its culture when it becomes a lot more purposeful. You just have to believe in it. You need the CEO to believe in it. And then you have to operationalize it. And you got to make the profit to be able to do also the good. The, the, the two come hand in hand. You can't be a philanthropy. Right, right. To be a responsible business, you do have to make that profit to take care of the, you know, everything that's involved in running a business. So, and maybe hire a Carol Cohn. And well, <laughs> some... I hope so because we have, you know, the the other things people ask me like, what's my management style? And it's like surrounding myself with people who are not me, because I am a little bit more creative than organized. But I, I have to spend a lot of time to be organized, and they're just smarter and they're different. They have great brains. That's what's so exciting about this work. It is, it's like a kaleidoscope of opportunity. Every single moment is different. Um, but we do have some standard, you know, uh, frameworks to help guide companies and brands because you need that. Otherwise, it's a free-for-all on ideas. And I don't like that either. Wow. Well, Carol, how can folks find you, connect with you, work with you? Do you want to leave us with any ways to connect after this conversation? It's easy. Everybody gets, finds me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, the, the, the website's Carol Cohn on purpose. Um, so that's pretty easy. Um, and, you know, I just, look, you don't have to, to get smart, listen to our podcast, The pod, listen to this podcast. The podcast is so fun because we get to do a really deep dive and make a lot of new friends. So that's, and it's interesting because now that I've had two years of it, people want to be on my podcast. Oh yeah, I want to be on your podcast. I thought I couldn't get on it. So that, that's kind of, I think that, I think I'm a closet journalist, albeit I'm Michael Barbero at the New York Times doesn't have to worry about me because I, I you know, I don't have a staff of 30 and um, he's very conversational. So I learned, and he does a lot of reflect and repeat. So I have to learn how to do that. Um, so, so he's really, really great, but we are always looking for great consultants. So people who are on their own in all sorts of different areas, especially in social media, um, and social focused technology. I, I met a fabulous woman the other day that makes, um, apps for good. Oh my gosh, she's fabulous. You know, so she's going to join the purpose collaborative. And the other thing is we're looking for some associates so that someone with, you know, three or four years experience, they understand social purpose. They have either worked for not-for-profit or they've studied it. They worked in sustainability. They got to be a great writer. By the way, guys, listening to this, just because tweeting is the cause du jour or TikTok, you got to be able to write. I love words. I'm never going to give up on words. Maybe they're shorter and briefer than my 4,000 word essay. Um, but you got to be able to write. You got to be able to see patterns. You got to do hard work. So what we're looking for some associates. So please join us. Um, and then also some more seasoned people too. So we'll never be large. I'm never going to be back the way I was with the cone days, but you know, we might get to be 10 or 15, but that's going to be it. Then we'll expand and contract with our purpose collaborative, which is fabulous. That's wonderful, Carol. I am very excited for you and to continue to watch the evolution of the purpose queendom. 
and <laughs> yeah, That's funny. and just you know the the word operationalize has entered my lexicon this year as well, and it actually came through from a black psychologist in Minneapolis who wrote this incredible book about how to basically, yeah, mend racialized trauma. And, you know, I was thinking about, hmm, how do we bring this language into how businesses can also rethink their own approach to, yeah, bringing more equity into into people culture. So integration all around. And I think we're developing new language and new story around what this all means and how we can move forward with it. So thank you so much, Carol, for all the work that you do for... Yeah, just being on the show today and um, for for all of you listeners out there, be sure to check out Carol um, and her work. And if you're interested in being part of her team, you know how to find her now. Or send us referrals. I mean, that's our business is, is, by, is by referrals, but it, it is incredible work, hard. Uh, you have to you have to know the de- guides and the details. Um, you have to have brilliant ideas and as well as details. And you got to go play the long game. Because um, if it's, you know, cause du jour, I don't want to do it. Now, there are people that will do it, but that's not what's going to help you with recruiting, retention, innovation, culture, customer relations. It, 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 you know, won't just won't be that good. Yeah, well, so much more to to learn about. And I'm sure you're an incredible mentor. So again, everyone follow Carol. And if you enjoyed this conversation, you know, please help us amplify the story by sharing, leaving a review. Yeah, we're so appreciative for your presence. Super. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. And stay tuned for next week's episode. The Alt Normal. This show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of Dig, Seed, Grow. If you enjoyed this conversation, please show us the love. You can subscribe, share, or leave a review. We'd be so grateful to help us amplify these stories far and wide. Thanks so much.